morning, everybody. Um, my name is Daniel Fridman. Postman Bechvod Achsanya, the Gemara at the uh, end of Masachas Brachos, says that the uh, appropriate thing to do uh, whenever one is, uh, is a guest in some particular place is to uh, begin by thanking one's hosts. Uh, so, first of all, thank all of you. Um, in the immediate sense, I also just want to thank the people at Teresha who have been very helpful with the administrative details here. I know Jordana has been very helpful in being in contact with me and uh, Dr. Hertzfeld, who honors us with her presence uh, in, in uh, organizing this. And I know many others as well, um, many of whom uh, I'm not even aware of behind the scenes. So please let me just begin uh, by offering my thanks. Um, the Gemara Rosh Hashanah on Daf Ches uh, quotes a pasuk which is familiar to us from the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, the Navi Yeshayahu, uh, the 55th chapter, Dirshu Hashem Bihimatsa'o Kira'uhu Bioso Karov. Uh, seek out God when he can be found, call to him uh, when he is close. Um, obviously, theologically, this presents something of a challenge to us. Um, we say three times a day in uh, the Ashrei prayer, uh, Psalms 145, that God is close to all those who call to him, to all those who call to him uh, with uh, deep uh, honesty and, and integrity. So how could it be that God is sometimes uh, closer than others? The Talmud, uh, though, uh, draws a distinction and says um, that challenging as it might seem superficially from a theological point of view, uh, indeed, Elu Asara Yamim Sheben Rosh Hashanah Liyom HaKippurim. The ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are imbued uh, with a special kind of a significance. God, uh, as it were, is even closer uh, during this time that we find ourselves in. And what could be in a more appropriate uh, verb that the Navi Yeshayahu uses as applied by the Gemara for this setting than Dirshu, the, the process of uh, seeking out. Allow me to elaborate a little bit on what this uh, word means to me, and even though it's my first time here, uh, to explain why I've always liked the name of this institution, and I say this without knowing um, anything about the thought that went into it, I guess this is what it means to me. Um, in Tanakh, the word, or the root, lidrosh, is imbued with a special kind of urgency or intensity. Uh, we find it first uh, in the context, of course, of Rivka Imenu. Rivka, who is beset by uh, unusual pangs, uh, uh, of uh, pregnancy and the, the two uh, fetuses uh, were moving about inside of her if it is so why me her process of drisha whatever it means did she daven did she go to uh, as Chazal tell us yeshiva whatever it is drisha is uh, a response to something that's deeply troubling us, uh, vexing, something that we feel viscerally. Um, nothing could be more visceral than something that's literally inside of you. Uh, that's what Rivka was experiencing. But from Rivka, we're meant to learn uh, to all other examples of Jerisha uh, that we have, that there should be something that um, is bothering us, is unsettled inside of us. And it's only in that context that real uh, Jerisha can take place. Uh, moreover, uh, the Torah... Moshe Rabbeinu in, in Parshas Vaischanan tells us, this is the Torah reading for Tishabav, that after uh, the spiritual desiccation and subsequent exile of the Jewish people, 
there will be a process of repentance, of national repentance, and the Torah uses uh, critical words. Ubikashtem misham es Hashem umatsasa. You shall seek out from there, from exile and from that place of spiritual desiccation, Hashem your God, and you will find Him ki sidrishenu only if you are doreshim bechol bechol In other words, drisha itself. Uh, to be effective requires deep intensity and the kind of searching process uh, that um, I would say its hallmark really is a, a certain measure of discomfort, the discomfort that uh, comes with confrontation of things that really are bothersome to us and perhaps even more so, and this will be our theme for today, things that aren't just bothersome to us, but things that are bothersome to us because they are bothersome about us things that we have to confront uh, inside of ourselves. It's in that context that we can best appreciate the verse that I started with, Dirshu Hashem If these are the ten days that we're meant to engage in the most searching process of Drisha of the entire year, it can only be uh, if we're prepared, uh, as the Pasuk says, V'chol V'chol to do so in, in a way that's extremely difficult. Um, the topic that I've uh, chosen, uh, I think, is a sine qua non uh, for these days. It's the process of uh, confronting personal failure um, that's uh, inherent in tshuva, um, but it should be understood um, from a variety of different points of view, and that's what I hope to do uh, over the next, uh, until 12.45, whatever time it is now. Um, just, you have the outline here uh, in front of you. Um, the, the basic trajectory that we're going to try and follow, um, first I want to begin with some examples from Tanakh. Uh, three examples of uh, individuals who strayed, who sinned, but were, for a variety of different reasons, unable to really come to terms with deep personal failure. Um, we'll start with Adam Harishon. This process of evasion is as old as humanity itself. That's why Adam becomes such an important example. It's uh, passed on to his uh, eldest child, to Cain, to Cain. And then, perhaps uh, most dramatically, it comes to fruition, the first Jewish king, uh, King Saul, Melech uh, Shaul. Uh, as just a matter of introduction, um, it's always easy when studying Tanakh to point out people's um, you know, failures, but uh, the point of the shir is not to say, ah, you know, they slipped up, but to understand why these things are so much a part of all of us. Uh, after all, the very reason that Tanakh records these things is because it's relevant, and not because this is a game of, of gotcha, that we could somehow feel better about ourselves if we can prove that you know, they slipped up uh, the opposite. It's because that these things, we believe, are deeply representative of the kinds of um, human challenges that uh, we all have to encounter. Uh, that will be the first stage. I want to move from there uh, to um, some very... Uh, I would call seminal texts from the Rambam based on Gemaras uh, where the Rambam discusses what personal accountability is really all about uh, the theological foundations of personal accountability and therefore the implications for this time of year I want to move from there to what I consider to be the greatest single example of personal accountability that we find in Tanakh and that's uh, from the life of King David um, it's best understood in the context of his predecessor's failure uh, we'll read that uh, inside and then fourth and finally to discuss a little bit about um, the benefits that can be accrued the very direct benefits that can be accrued both interpersonally 
and more important than anything else in our relationships with God, uh, with Rebona Shalom, uh, by uh, going down the path of accountability, as difficult as that is. So um, I know there's a very wide range of uh, exposure and backgrounds here, so I've been told. So um, uh, English is provided for uh, all the sources, but um, what, I'll, what I'll generally try to do is read things in the original to the extent that time allows uh, and uh, translate everything as I go. But if anything requires further elucidation or simply uh, just definition, uh, please don't hesitate. You know, that's, that's the point. Uh, okay, so just to, just to begin, um, as I mentioned, the, the process of, of uh, evasion, or the phenomenon, I should say, of evasion, um, is as old as, um, as humanity itself. So, to begin with, psukim uh, that we'll read in a very short order, uh, on Shabbos, Parshas Bratius, uh, the Torah says as follows. This is, of course, in the context of the Tree of Knowledge, the Eitz Hadas. Vatera ha'isha, it's your first source, kitov ha'etz l'ma'achal v'chisa avahu le'enayim, v'chnechmad ha'etz l'haskil v'tikach mipriyo v'tochal v'titen gam le'isha ima v'yochal. So Eve uh, sees the woman, whose truth be told name isn't even Eve yet at this stage, just the woman, uh, she sees uh, that the fruit which has been prohibited is indeed uh, desirous and even tempting, and she eats from it and she gives uh, to her husband, to Adam, and he consumes of it as well. And so there's this transformation. Their eyes are opened. Uh, uh, we believe that they had the faculty of sight before this, so we don't mean in the physiological sense, but we, we do uh, understand, and the various commentaries explain this in a variety of different ways, but there was some transformation of perspective. We won't get into that now. The Rambam wrote a very celebrated passage about this in his Guide to the Perplexed, Whatever it means, there was some major shift in perspective, and the proximate result of that was ki They understood something not just about the world but about themselves, and something that was humiliating to them. And so they took, uh, remarkably, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do this myself. Right? They had some kind of uh, very skillful, immediate response. They were able to go to a fig tree and. Uh, you know, rudimentary and primitive though it was, uh, able to uh, fashion um, uh, loincloths uh, for themselves. Uh, the distinction between uh, the clothes that they're able to produce for themselves and the clothes uh, that in the end of the story appear uh, will return to that point. I think it's extremely significant. But be that as it may, they make loincloths for themselves. Uh, Chazal tell us that the te'ina, uh, this is cited by Rashi, uh, the Te'ina was actually the Eitz Hadas. Okay, so it becomes even more interesting that the very vehicle of their sin was actually the vehicle of part of their ability to uh, at least seek temporary solace or, or avoid further embarrassment. And then, Vayishmu es kol Hashem lokim misalech bagan liruach hayom. And so they hear the sound of God uh, traveling through the garden. Vayischabei ha'adam v'ishto mipnei Hashem lokim and so Adam and his wife uh, hide because there's some kind of a fear here of God's presence in the garden. And so God calls out to Adam, right? And again, this isn't meant to be geographically speaking, where are you? But there's some a deep penetrating question here about your place in the cosmic order of things. After all, you are not God. It is not for you to decide what's permissible and prohibited. Okay, so this of course becomes an opportunity 
uh, for Adam to uh, engage and perhaps to confront personal failure. He knows that he's in violation. So let's now read with, with you know, very, very careful lens um, what his response is. And again, it's not just to meant to be what happened in this particular case, but it's typological. It's meant to serve as a kind of a prototype for the process that we all go through. You'll see it in the case of Cain. You'll see it perhaps at its fullest expression when it comes to Shaul, the three passages that we'll begin with. So Adam's response is fascinating. Vayomer et kolcha shamati bagan. I heard your sound right, traveling through the garden, true enough. Va'ira, and I was afraid, ki erom anochi, for I am naked, ve'echave, and so I have hidden. There's certainly an element of truth here, but what's so striking about Adam's response? Sorry, what's that? I, it, yeah, go ahead. That he knew he was in fact naked. Right. Right. Number one, that right, the only the fact that he knows he's naked is right. It, that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened as a proximate result of what he did. Right. So there's an, an aspect here of self-incrimination. Yes. Precisely. Right. So there's a kind of uh, a deflection here. Right. Well, he's maybe partially naked. Right. But he's not entirely naked. So there's and this is again a, a metaphor, but what is Adam really trying to do? And we would say colloquially in English, he's trying to cover up. Okay? So the whole notion of, of nakedness and clothing, right, that's a metaphor, a very powerful one, for what's really going on here is that there's uh, an obfuscation. The irony, of course, is, is that, and this is very relevant to all of us, is that, right, as the Navi Yirmiyahu says, Prophet Jeremiah, Ani Hashem choker lev bochein klayos, right? I am God, searcher of hearts, uh, knower of the insides. You can't be fooled. God can't be fooled. But that's, uh, that's something that we all struggle with. So, so Adam says, oh, it wasn't that I was afraid because I know that I've transgressed your will. I was just afraid because I'm naked. Well, A, you're not entirely naked. And, and B, the only reason that you're aware of that is because of the fundamentals here. So, I wouldn't say it's the, it's the most adept uh, attempt at covering things up, but it's certainly an understandable one. Yeah, there was a comment back there. So. Oh, no? Okay. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Well, what makes it even more interesting is that initially when they're naked, they don't feel ashamed. So it's not the nakedness per se that makes them feel ashamed. It's actually the exposure and that they're hiding in the bushes and they're covering themselves with leaves which God created, I mean, it, it's also tangled and it's such a mess because no matter how much they're covering themselves, he's completely exposed. That's uh, very well said. I think you said it much, I think you said it even more precisely than I did. I, I couldn't agree more, right? And, and that the, the very nakedness itself, we should know, and that's really a third point to add on, isn't uh, something that uh, Adam and his wife were altogether concerned about, right? Uh, absence, again, this, uh, transformation that emerges from sin. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. The word by love. Yeah. Are we to assume that we call the evil? I mean, you know that they talk, look, the evil God, of the moment, of these places, right? And he's not afraid of God. There's no fear of God. Right. So the word by love, when he eats the evil, transforms it to another place altogether. 
of knowledge meaning of understanding that he has to understand that he has to be on the sun still. Not necessarily because he ate a devil, I think, but because maybe for the first time he understands the position that he stands before God, that they are not all of a sudden. I'm of you know it we always we think it's this child and this is I agree with you. I think that the, the fear is because, right, not so much that he heard God, as, as you correctly point out, there has been much dialogue between Adam and God, but the fact that he now stands in transgression of God's will. So just one second, let's just proceed a little bit further. So, the, so God says, right, as you would expect, he's not fooled, Vayomer ki eromata. How do you even know, right, that you're naked? Or maybe more precisely, why is this of concern to you? Hamin ha'etz, etc., etc., right? Is it because you, you sinned? So now we move on to the second level in the conversation. Vayomer ha'adam, this is the twelfth verse. Ha'isha asher natata imadi. He natna limin ha'etz va'ochel. Okay, right, we've no longer, we're no longer engaged in a cover-up, but... What is Adam, if you had to right, distill it down to its core, we're no longer contesting the facts, but we are right, discussing blame. So Adam's point here is that, you're, okay, God, you're right. It wasn't that I was naked, but how did I end up here hiding from you? Whose fault is this? It's either her fault or your fault. But it's not my fault. So here you have this. Here, here you have the basic typology of evasion. It always begins with contesting the facts, right? And then when that is no longer possible, and again, in uh, in a human courtroom, you can get pretty far with that, right? You could, you know, just you know, uh, this this week, right? Right? Bashar Assad could spend an hour with Charlie Rose, and it's like this big dance, right? When it comes to human beings, with God, it's always a failed strategy. Right? Because he knows what the facts are, but you, so you always quickly find throughout Tanakh right, a, a discussion of what is the appropriate uh, place for blame. Now, let's just quickly read God's response before we move on to Cain. So, this is the last verse here that I've uh, brought on, the, um, on this section, the 17th one, when God is uh, meeting out the punishment first to the serpent, then to Eve, and then finally to Adam. Ula Adam Amar. Ki shamata l'kol ishtecha. You have agency. It's true. It's true what you said. Right? This wasn't totally independent. You were in dialogue with her. And she wasn't totally independent. She was with the serpent. But there's agency. This is fundamental to humanity. Now let's take a look at the story with Cain. Again, uh, the, this is on the, the third page of your, of your packet. And let's just follow how this typology repeats itself throughout uh, Mikra. Of course, this is uh, Cain and Abel. Cain uh, offers a sacrifice for whatever reason. It's rather uh, elusive from our point of view. God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. He instead accepts Abel's sacrifice. That's not a simple thing. We don't know why that is. There are various rabbinic interpretations of that. And uh, this uh, causes deep sense of shame and consternation in, in Cain and God tries to intercede and he, and he says to Cain Lama panecha, don't be crushed by this if you can redeem yourself Halo im 
if you are able, right, if you improve, whatever it is, se'et, that's an important word here, you will be able to manage, you will be able to be successful. Then even Cain opts for the other course and he kills his brother, right, because if you offer a sacrifice and it's not accepted, and somebody else does and it is, right, that gives one the impression that he is better than I, then she is better than I am. Right? So, what's a good way to... You can change that in one of two ways. You could either become better or you could kill them. Right? Or get rid of them somehow. Right? And we, we basically, it, always in life, you know, follow one of these two strategies. So, let's pay careful attention. After Cain kills Abel, so it's, it's an exact replica of the conversation with Adam. God uh, comes in uh, for some kind of what we would call today an intervention of sorts. And he poses a question. Vayomer Hashem el Kayin, a Hebel Achicha. Where is your brother Abel? Right? Not just a Hebel, but a Hebel Achicha. Achdus, right, is very significant. It's a real value. And the, there's a deep and penetrating criticism here. You've abandoned Achdus. A Hebel Achicha. Vayomer. And so Kayin's response is, Lo Yadati. I do not know. And then even further, Right? Perhaps incriminating himself. Hashomer, Achi, Anochi, you ask me, a Hevel, Achicha, right? And God, I challenge the fundamentals, bless you, of your assumption, Hashomer, Achi, Anochi. You speak in terms of fraternity, I myself am not particularly convinced. So is it true or false? Does Kayan not know where Hevel is? Right, okay, so we are still in the, in the phase of disputing the facts, right? So, he, right? so he says, right, I do not know. And again, this can only get so far with God. So God immediately responds, Vayomer me'asita kol demei achicha tzoakime lai minadama. Right? The sound of your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. So God says, you do know, and I know as well, right? So... You know, let's let's move beyond that. And not only that, it's not just the, the sound of the blood, but whose blood, Kol Demei Achicha, God insists on a world where Achdus is a value. Okay. And then the, the punishment phase comes in, okay, that Cain will be exiled, he will no longer be able to continue in his previous occupation. What was his previous occupation? Right, that Hebel was a shepherd, but Cain was... Right, he worked the land. So, right, he's being... We would put it in, in modern terms, he's losing his license to practice, right? Which is, you know, a significant penalty. So Cain's response is, is fascinating, and how we should interpret it is a matter of dispute between two of the greatest biblical commentaries, between uh, Rashi and Ramban, between Rashi and Nachmanis. So this is the 13th verse... Vayomer Kain al Hashem Gadol Avoni Miniso. So the way that Rashi interprets this is, it's you know, Kain is asking a rhetorical question of sorts. Is my sin too great to bear? So he's not disputing the fact that he sinned, but what he is saying is, right, this is a disproportionate reaction on your part. Here you come blaming me for such a terrible thing, but is it really as bad? Right, as you make it out to be. Okay, so this is a, a, a new strategy of evasion. Alternatively, the Ramban, um, and we'll return to this a little bit later, says that this is the first example that we have in uh, all of uh, our tradition of vidui, of confession. Gadol avoni 
indeed, my sin is too great uh, to be born. Now, let's just make two points about this. Number one, the root here of carrying, we know, is a very significant word. Where do we know that from? We mentioned it before, earlier in the story. Well done. I want to say it a little louder. Right, exactly. Halo im Right, if you improve, you will be able to manage, you will be able to carry. Kayan here returns to that conversation. I realize my failure. But more to the point, and this becomes critical for us because now we're going to a bit of a deeper level, I hope, which is not just pointing out how much a part of our condition evasion is, number one, disputing the facts, and number two, right, disputing blame. Right, well now we're getting to the point of why is this so hard for us? So Kayan's deeply revealing comment, Gadol Avonimi Naso, should impact our understanding of that question. Ultimately, that which prevents us from being able to own up to things is because somehow we're crushed by it, Gadol Avonimi Naso, because confrontation becomes almost unbearable. Because we don't believe, we don't really believe um, that there can be any excuse for what we've done and so we'll do even irrational, almost absurd things, like in dialogue with God, deny right, that which is plain and obvious both to us and to Him. Or to try to reassign blame, a little less absurd, but still ultimately um, an unstable kind of a, a response, an irrational kind of a response, because gadol avoni miniso. Okay, so let me just uh, plant a seed um, for a little bit later, we'll return to it at the very end uh, of this year today. Uh, Kain continues. Hein gerashta usi hayom me'al adama. You have exiled me today. By the way, that's not the first time we have already at this early stage of Bracious Gerush. What's the first? The first exile? That's exactly what happened to Adam. In other words, both sin, conversation, and response, they're really meant to be mirror images of each other. Umi panecha esater. Right? And now I will have to hide from you. Right? Cain isn't the first person to try that. Right? Again, that's very similar to what his father and mother did. We're going to discuss more of this instinct to run from God. Um, and ultimately when we get up to King David, we'll see his greatness in being able to uh, pull off precisely the opposite. Yes, go. It, it, it does play in to both Rashi and Ramban's interpretation. So very briefly, for Rashi, that's critical, the sequence, because for Rashi, the point is, is you've given me this enormous punishment. Is this really proportionate to my crime? Right, so for him, that sequence is extremely important. For Ramban, it works to be a Yeah. Right. So the Ramban actually does take up that issue. You can see it inside. I, I put just a little bit of an excerpt here on the next. But if you take a look inside the Ramban, you'll see that he addresses that. That Cain is actually thanking God for not killing him. That his punishment he sees as a form of clemency. The fact that he'll be able to continue to live. That Cain deeply senses. This is fascinating. But we won't get into it for now. But just to mention it. That Cain senses actually the only really just punishment would be for God to take his life in response to him taking his brother's life and the fact that he's only being exiled right is, is actually um, a kind of um, a, a version of clemency 
Um, we'll just mention it because how can we not, even though this is totally uh, far afield, but I was inspired, right? What is this the paradigm for? Uh, which halachic construct where murdering somebody, but perhaps with some measure of justification or some aspect of an excuse results in exile? Yes? Right, the, the notion of Roseach Bishkaga, right, that's obviously pulled directly from this story. Um, let's now move on to the third and final basic failure that we have, the, the, just one second, uh, the case of Shaul. Um, let me set the stage. Shaul is, of course, told that he's given a mission of eradicating, a very difficult mission, of eradicating the, the nation of Amalek. The Gemar Yuma tells us that Shaul raised uh, what would be, we would call today, especially for those of uh, us who remember myself not included, uh, the, the Vietnam years would be called the form of conscientious objection. Uh, why? Uh, the Gemar Numa describes that Shaul was horrified by the prospect of killing innocents, right? Total eradication means eradication of people who uh, ostensibly have no sin, and not only that, but animals as well. Vayarev Banachal, the Pasuk says here, Shaul was uh, ethically dis- disturbed. I see some people in the room uh, are, are sharing in that discomfort. Uh, there's a reason that Chazal project that. Um, it's because it's totally anathema to our general sense of, of justice. Right? But be that as it may, the Gemara's response is, uh, at least Gemara's projected response unto God is from the uh, Megillah Kohelis, Ecclesiastes, al Don't be more righteous than God. Um, in other words, this is all inscrutable, but you have to go ahead and do it. So we know that Shaul, and this is one of those cases in life where doing something 95% is actually worse than not doing it at all, as I'll explain. So what does Shaul do? Anybody remember the story? This is the 15th chapter of Samuel. Let's try to get maybe somebody who hasn't had an opportunity yet. Right, so... Everybody, uh, this is... Uh, we could stop right here. That's exactly what the Navi says. It says, Vayachmol Shaul Vihaam, and Shaul and the nation have chemla, they have uh, compassion, al agag ve'al metabatzon, on the most powerful person in the society, on the king, and on the best of the sheep, on both of those uh, groups. Let's just make a number of very important points. Number one, a textual one. Does it say that the people were out in front? No, it says, Vayachmol Shaul Vihaam. He was very much at the head. Now, the people may have gone along with it, but this is what we call leading from ahead and not from behind. Number one. Number two is let's get into the, the underlying theology. What makes Amalek so detestable? Well done. Exactly right. That, that Amalekite behavior is Vayizanev Becha, this is I'm quoting from Bishalach, Kol Shalim Acharecha. Right? They attack the defenseless, the vulnerable, the sick, the weak, those who are straggling behind. So Shaul's sin is often misrepresented, and this is really a misrepresentation of the sin, the sin is often misrepresented as that he went most of the way, but he didn't finish the job. It's much worse than that. He emulated Amalekite behavior. Apparently Shaul didn't find it so detestable to kill the children and the weak animals. Right? Who did he have? Right? He, he attacked them. So in a certain sense, that which is so heinous about his crime is that, is that the war on Amalek is really a kind of a moral statement and, and he undermined that through this process. Okay, so now, now we're going to see this process. God sends Shmuel, whereas God himself uh, you know, confronted uh, Adam, Harishon, and Cain. Now let's take a look 
This is the fourth source, uh, this amazing confrontation between Shul and Shal. It is the uh, apotheosis that we have in Tanakh of the phenomenon, if I call it, of evasion, the opposite of the, of the goal of accountability. The Navi says as follows, So Shmuel comes to Shaul, and unlike Adam and Cain, who at least wait for God to ask them the question, the Ayeka, the Ehevel Achicha, as it were, Shaul, right, right, swimming in his sea of guilt, can't even wait. Vayomer lo Shaul, Baruch atal Hashem, blessed are you to God, Hakimoti et Devar Hashem. I have fulfilled right, God's word. So in, in the paradigm that we've developed today, what, what, what stage are we in right here? Right, disputation of facts. <laughs> right, so again, he didn't even wait for the accusation. Right, this is a deeply, um, right, the lady doth protest too much, and so doth the king. Right, Hakimoshi et Var Hashem. So Shmuel is, right, unrelenting in his sarcasm. Vayomer Shmuel, ah, really? So what then is that sound of the sheep that I hear? Really? Is that really so? You fulfilled the word of God or have you not? Shoshal's response is remarkable. I have brought them from Amalek. Asher... Chamal ha'am al mitavatzon vehabakar leman zevoach v'ashem elokecha, etc., etc. Shaul does two things here. Number one, right? It's a twofold defense. In as much as he's willing to concede the facts, what does he immediately move to? Let's remember what Adam did. Ah, who's to blame? What I meant, what I said, Hakimoti et Tavar Hashem, was, this is Clintonian, right? I fulfilled the word of God, but the nation, right, they did not, number one. And number two is that we've just, we understand the word of God even more deeply than you do, Samuel, prophet of God, because what are we going to do with the animals? We'll offer, we'll offer a sacrifice. And of course, this is where Shmuel launches into probably the most famous dialogue of the, of the entire book. And he says, why do you think that sacrifices are somehow worth more than compliance? Right? This is, in a certain sense, idolatrous of you to determine what is God's will and what is not God's will. God told you to do this. He didn't ask you to bring the animals as a sacrifice. So this is all... Uh, deeply offensive, and therefore uh, your uh, monarchy is through. God has rejected you as uh, as His king. Okay, now, just to skip uh, skip ahead, let's just take a look at the twenty uh, fourth verse. There's important uh, intermediate phases, but just in the in the interest of time, um, just skip ahead. So, Vayomer Shaul al Shmuel. This is the twenty fourth verse. Chatasi, I have sinned. Ki avarti es pi Hashem. And I violated your instructions to me, Hashem, uh, of course. The truth is, I was afraid. I was afraid of the people. So, this now may be honest, it may be true, but this isn't going to be a good reason for Shaul to be able to continue as the king, and why not? What's the single most important thing about leadership? 
Right, right. This is this is a pretty right. If if he's trying to exonerate himself, this is a pretty good indictment of why the monarchy really needs to end, and it needs to end like now, right? Because this is really important. Um, but it's also a return, e- even if it were true, right, which I'm not entirely convinced that it is. Right, it would be an indictment. But why uh, should we be skeptical? Shaul claims Kiaretsiasam. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's simply not what the Navi says. It said Vayachmol Shaul Vehaam. Now all of a sudden, this is again in the very minute that he says Chatasi. Right, again, he's reapportioning blame. He, he, he can't really own up to it. Okay, and Shmuel is unmoved. Okay, uh, by this. Um, Shaul continues, just one more verse. So Shmuel saw, carry my sin, again, uh, echoes of Cain. Vishuv imi, right, because there's this big national celebration that's about to take place. Ve'eshtachavel Hashem. And uh, just come with me. So Vayomer Shmuel, Shaul lo ashuvimcha. I will not uh, come with you. I can't put my stamp of approval on this kind of activity. It's terrible. What would it look like if I were to participate in this sacrificing of the animals? Right? It's, in, it's, it's actually kind of shocking that Shaul is even asking him to do this, right? because these animals, uh, how could they possibly be the object of an unacceptable korban? Kima astas devar Hashem, you have rejected God's word. Vayimascha Hashem yos melech. Okay, so Shmuel turns to go. What happens? Shaul literally grabs onto him and there are clothes that are torn. Keep, keep this in mind. Clothing that's offered, clothing that's torn. We're going to return to this theme. Okay. So, Vayomer Elav Shmuel, Kara Hashem es mamluchos Yisrael me'alecha hayom. You're through. The, the symbol of the torn clothing is indeed a metaphor for your torn monarchy. God right, is not uh, volatile. God does not have vacillations. Because he's not a man. Man, of course, changes. Man is unstable. This becomes the, the critical conclusion. Vayomer Khatasi, so Shaul says again, I have sinned. Ata Kabdeni na neged ami, neged Yisrael. But Shmuel, please come with me because what's still very important to me? Kabdeni na, what is Shaul asking for? The single, that's exactly, the single most critical difference that underlies David versus Shaul, and we're going to look at it is that for Shaul, in the end, appearances always matter. And for David, it's the substance that's always more important. And and Shaul, the appearances are critical. Because if you really are in the mode of chatasi, how can you be talking about appearances? Keep that in mind as we go forward. This massive confrontation between how much does substance matter how much does form matter David versus Shaul where does it come to its head when David has an incredibly um, angry argument with who from the house of Shaul with Michal and what's their argument about it's demeaning to your kingship that you should be dancing 
right, it says that David was mecharker b'chol oz l'fnei Hashem, the joy for him of transporting the Aron to the Makom Asher Yivchar Hashem, right, he didn't get to build the Beis HaMikdash, but this is, you know, the closest that he gets, and Michal, but not just Michal, Michal Bas Shaul, who has imbibed in her father's house appearances, form, cannot accept this. And David says, David goes on a tirade where it, 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 it's, it's really like a great spousal argument because it moves from the immediate point to the fundamental very quickly. Right? And there's no argument like that kind of an argument. Right? Where it's really about something much deeper. And David says, God who chose me over your father. Because you're speaking as your father's daughter because in the minute that, that Shaul is confronting his sin with Amalek, all he can ask Shmuel is what we have to, pre- we have to preserve appearances, which is the opposite of what real tshuva has to be. And we're going to see that with David. It comes to a head in that encounter. If you really want to be a Baal tshuva, you can't also be worried about how things are going to look. Yeah, go ahead. It is the same story. It's the same. It's, it's exactly the same story. Yes, please, go ahead. Um, By the way, not my original line. Bishala. Yeah, no, go, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. But what struck me also is interesting was almost um, um, kind of like the full circle thing. It says later on that Yehoshua by Halosh Yehoshua. So, in other words, just the wordplay is very interesting. Right. So, it's number one. But number two, regardless of here, I mean, Amaron basically says the exact same thing after the Kaytaydel. So, in other words, it, it seems like Shuttle is getting a much more severe punishment than um, Amaron got. And when he ultimately went up to Horahar, you know, it says, why is he not um, able to see the line of Israel? It's not because of the Kaytaydel, it says because maybe we got Right. Uh, so, like, first it's interesting that Shaul is speaking basically the exact same mentality as Avram. It was people who made do this, blah, 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 and he's getting very severe punishment, and it doesn't seem that Avram, let's say, in parallel, got... Okay, right, so three points. Uh, I agree about the Nechal Shalim and Bayachosh, even though, again, it's a little bit of a term for word, one is Chalash, one is Chashal, but I agree it's the same letters. Okay. But, but no, no, but it's a point it's a point that's very well taken. Um, I, I can't sign on to the reading of Aaron. We, we can't get into it for now. I think it's a much more complicated. So let me just make three quick points. Number one, it's a difference between a Kohen Gadol and a Melech. It's a very important difference. Number two, in the case of Aaron, it was actually true. In the case of Shaul, it wasn't. By Achmol, Shaul v'ha'am, that Shaul was actually out front. So it was actually duplicitous in a certain sense. And, and third, and most importantly... What it really has to do with, and this is an Aharon topic, so we can't get into it for now, but Aharon's sin is, is much less grievous for the following reason. Again, Shaul killed the kids. Right. He killed the children. Right. He just didn't kill the king. Right. So how do you go and kill the children unless what you're saying is, I don't understand any of this, but at least I'm keeping Devar Hashem. But to violate Devar Hashem and then take it upon yourself to kill the children... There's almost no sin like it in Tanakh. It's just incredibly offensive. But let me just make, because I, you know, 
we're on the Erev Yom HaKippurim, so how can we not talk about Bezos Yavo Aharon El HaKodesh? Just say one thing about Aharon. Aharon's sin comes, it, it's really a weakness that emerges from his strength. What do I mean? Aaron's greatness is his Ohev Shalom, his Rodev Shalom, his integration with the people. The very fact that he cares so much about them and there's so much literature in Chazal means that he's particularly compromised when the people really need something. We all know this in life, that the people who are most empathetic and sympathetic, the trouble that they're going to have is with boundaries. The people who are callous, right, they don't struggle with boundaries, they, they struggle with caring. Right? And, and so Aaron's sin is, is much more palatable in the context of how deeply and, and convincingly he really cares about the people. Right? Shaul, and, and this is really critical, Shaul has the opposite persona. What he's always interested in is actually showing that he's very different than the people. Kabdenina. I wish right, to be elevated, seen as different, seen as regal. And that's what makes it particularly galling that what he does is he says, well, look, you know, you know me. I can never say no to the people. It's just, right, it rings particularly so. You know, when we evaluate somebody in the context of a particular sin, it also has to do with their basic trajectory. Okay, I'm going to, yeah, uh, let's just I just want to go ahead. Yeah, sure, go ahead. For 27, who ripped what? Who ripped who? So imagine that Shmuel is turning to go right. and Shaul grabs his cloak. Okay, so Shaul. And, you know, the torque you know, causes the, the ripping. Oh, ripping clothes, by the way, are very important yeah, in, no. in Tanakh. No. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, just, um, just, I think the Abarbanel says that either Aaron or Moshe were actually punished for Meimaribah, that Aaron was punished for Diego, Moshe was punished for the Aragla, but Meimaribah, God wants to wait a while and pin it on another, you know, have meals to take it on. It's a huge okay. debate about what exactly went wrong. What does Meimaribah really mean? Um, it's a huge, uh, it's a it's a huge topic. Um, there's a lot of evidence to support that idea. Uh, uh, I didn't know about that Abravanel, but the Chazal already uh, discussed that. They discussed that point. Um, okay, so let me just let me just forge a little bit ahead. Um, the uh, I, we're not going to have time to do it inside, but let me just mention um, uh, something critical here that the Rambam discusses. When the Rambam uh, the Rambam wrote. The uh, single greatest work on tshuva um, of all time, called Hilchos Tshuva in the Mishnah Torah. In the Rambam, uh, at the very heart of Hilchos Tshuva, chapters five and six, wants to explain that which underlies the idea of accountability. We just read three stories about evading accountability, and the Rambam uh, wants to get to the the reason that accountability is something that's so central to Chuba, but also so important in Yahadus generally. So anybody remember what the Rambam discusses, if they've seen it before? What are the, the, the basic topic of the fifth and the sixth chapter of Hilchos Chuba? And we're not going to take a look at it inside, but I really encourage you to do so, uh, if you hold on to these sheets. It's the topic of free will. Okay? And the Rambam calls this literally the pillar of the entire Jewish religion and human life itself. And what the Rambam basically says there is that not only is nothing predetermined in life, which, by the way, is not a simple position to maintain because then you have to ask, well, if it's not predetermined, how can God know in advance? The Rambam struggles with that question. Number two, you could say, well, if, no, if, if, if nothing is predetermined, how could it be that God gets his way in the world? Forget about divine foreknowledge, but what about the divine will? Doesn't God get to impose his will on the world? And the Rambam answers that question by saying it is the divine will that humans should be in the driver's seat. It's an amazing idea. 
And the Ram says, not only that, but moreover, right, people aren't even predispositioned towards good or evil. It's an amazing concept, because you could still say there's free will in the end, but nobody's going to force Rebecca to do anything, you know, um, she may be inclined to do one thing or another, but nobody's going to force her to do it. Sharon might, you know, be predisposed to do something wrong, but she can still fight it in the end. The Rambam won't say that. The Rambam says there is not even, it wouldn't be fair if there even was a predilection. And other Rishonim are just, they don't even know what to do with the Rambam. It seems that there are open Gemaras that, that contradict the Rambam. The Rambam comes to this remarkable conclusion. He says not only are, are, are good and, and evil, sin and righteousness in a person's hands, but even wisdom. A person gets to choose whether they will be a wise man or a fool. The Hagos Maimonios, uh, Mayor Cohen Rothenberg, who was a 13th century Rishon, student of the uh, Maharam uh, Meirutenberg, um, says that, uh, he just quotes a Gemara Nida, and he says it's, uh, it's not conceivable. The Gemara says there that intelligence, uh, what we would call genetics, intelligence is something that's determined uh, prenatally. Uh, and so he, he says, well, you know, maybe what the Rambam had in mind the whole time was merely that, you know, you don't get to choose your intelligence, your aptitude, but you get to intru- choose how deeply you, how hard you try, essentially. But that's not what the Rambam says. The Rambam says, you can see it inside later, that these are things that you choose. It's an amazing, unmitigated, unadulterated, totally radical perspective on free will. And the reason that's so important, then the Rambam transitioned, he says, and therefore, one should really feel awful about having sinned because it was your decision. But one shouldn't only feel awful, one should feel emboldened and excited because tshuva is likewise a possibility. Let's not forget that it's not only the Rambam, but the Ramban as well. We just went through these psukim in, in Parshas Nitzavim. After speaking at great length about the mitzvah of tshuva, the Torah says the following, Lo bashamayim hi, lo, ve, lo me'ever layam hi. So uh, rabbinically, the Gemara Baba Mitzi interprets that to mean that the process of studying Torah and coming to halachic decisions is not reserved to God. That is something that humans have agency over. But the Ramban says, Nachmanri says, that in the simple reading of the Psukim, what it means is that tshuva is karov elecha hadavar ma'od. It's your call whether or not to take accountability for something. It's your call how you're going to uh, advance and how you're going to chart your own course. That becomes extremely significant um, and becomes an important, uh, obviously a very stirring charge for us this time of year. Um, let's not forget that it's the Rambam himself who says, the only time the Rambam says that there's actual obligation to do tshuva, many times he speaks about the obligation to confess one's sins, but the only time that he speaks about the obligation to actually do tshuva is in the context of Yom HaKippurim. The ball is squarely in our court. So if we have any models of tshuva um, taking accountability, doing the opposite of what Adam, Kayan, and then Shaul did, which was A, to dispute the facts, then B, to try to reassign blame, uh, who can we turn to? And is so often the case, none other than you know, uh, the person who the Rav described as the religious genius, uh, David HaMelech. Okay, so let's take a look at the story. This is uh, part three. We just summarized. Yeah, just one second. Uh, we just summarized part two. Again, I, my um, summary is no substitute for seeing the Rambam inside, so I encourage you to do so. Um, you know. So, go ahead. So in terms of the strategies that you've just been discussing, 
So there was no place at all in, in the Rambam's perspective for, for blame because we are the only... It's, a, it's, 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 it's what I call a radical system of accountability. The Rambam says you can't even argue that you're predisposition towards something. That itself is no excuse. It's an amazing assertion. One that, again, the other Rishonim don't feel compelled to take such an extreme position. Again, you can still preserve ultimate human agency and free will and admit that this one is going to have a harder time with it than that one. But the Rambam seems uncomfortable with that. He thinks that would be unfair. Um, so I don't know that we have to go to his extremes. Again, it seems somewhat radical to me. But I think that the basic message of accountability, it, it, it's the opposite of the, I guess, the... Uh, spiritual pathology that we've encountered up until now uh, through the, the personas of Adam, Cain, and, and Shaul. Um, but again, um, we're not here to be critical of those figures. We're here to, to learn from them and, and because we, I think we all recognize within ourselves that that's something that's um, very much a part of our experience. Okay, so nobody needs a review of the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a grave sin. Um, it's a very, very grave sin. It's a sin that involves murder. It's a sin that involves a sexual crime. If two of the three cardinal sins are idolatry, is one, but the other two are murder and uh, uh, sexual immorality, giloy arayos, so you've hit two of the three. It's pretty significant. And God says, uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan Hanavi, the prophet, to communicate this to David, which he does famously through a parable about a... Sheep, which obviously hits a chord for David, whose previous occupation was, right, a shepherd, right? Hello, Yisrael. That David is typified by his role as the, as the shepherd, as many of our other um, uh, heroes are, right? So, so David is given the, the parable of the rich man who steals the poor man's sheep, and David is incensed. And he says, not only does he have to pay the sheep back fourfold, but he sentences the person to death. And Nasan, in that most famous line, says, who is this man? Right? It's like Queen Esther. Ish, Tsar, Yev. Right? The drama. Ataha Ish. Right? And um, he just, just absolutely tears into David. And he says, the sword which you brought down on Uriah's head will never leave your house. Right, terrible curses upon your head and let's now swoop in here at the 13th verse David's response again David has every reason to believe that right, the end is nigh so David's response is quite simply Vayomer David al-Nasan the 13th verse this is the 9th source the 8th page Vayomer David al-Nasan chatasi Hashem. the hallmark of tshuva is the lack of verbosity right there's no disputation of fact there's no reassignment of blame. Simple, to the point, chatasi lahashem. And again, he's not asking chatasi lahashem and therefore have mercy on me. Chatasi lahashem, but you don't really understand. Chatasi lahashem, okay, you understand, but it's really not my fault. Chatasi lahashem, end of story. Vayomer nasan al David gam hashem havir chataschha lo samos. Before David even heard that he was going to be exonerated right all he had to say was chatasi Hashem. but Nasan says don't think you're getting off easy right the rest of David HaMelech's life is an unmitigated disaster an unmitigated disaster we're going to talk a little bit later about Amnon and Tamar 
which triggers Absalom, which triggers exile, all kinds of problems, right? Um, it, and that process starts right now with the death of the child, right? That is the, the offspring of, of, of course, uh, this particular sin. Okay, so Nathan goes on to tell David, this is the 14th verse, The child will die. So the 15th verse, Nasan goes home. It's a line that I love. Who had this child? Not Ashes David, but Ashes Uriah. Right? And that's an incrimination. The child takes mortally ill. Uh, how do we say mortally ill in modern Hebrew? I don't know if you have an Israelis here. Right? Matzav Anush, right? So that's where it comes from. Okay? And now we come to this remarkable almost um, genius, spiritually genius response on the part of David. Vayivakesh David es ha'elokim be'ad hana'ar. What's David's response? Be'ad hana'ar. The consequences of his sin, he knows, are not limited to himself and he can't hold himself back. Vayivakesh David es Hashem. What did Adam do as a result of sin? What did Cain do? Right? I want to hide from you. My instinct is to run. David deeply and viscerally understands. That's what we spoke about before. Yeshu, right? Es Hashem, right? The, the process that we're involved in these days. David knows that there's no running and there's no hiding. Second, David but not Ba'adatsmo. Be'ad ha-no'ar, be'ad ha-yeled. Okay. Va'yatum David som, uva velan v'shachav arza. So David, so just an amazing thing, David not only fasts, but what does he literally do? He lowers himself. Who should we contrast this with? Who wanted to be... Right. Kabdenina. David, there's no pretense. And again, he's not hiding from anybody, as we'll see. Okay. Va'yakumu ziknei be'so alav lahakimomin ha'aretz. Everybody wanted David to get up, to not be so... Right? David's not hiding from them. And David is just simply inconsolable. Below ava, below vara itam David will not agree, right? This isn't about appearances. There's something much more profound at stake. Be'ad ha-na'ar. And David is unmoved. Vayhi bayom ha-shvi'i vayamot ha-yalad. Vayiru avdei David lahagid lo ki meis ha-yalad ki amru hinei v'yos ha-yalad chai dibarnu elav lo shama b'koleinu eich nilmar elav meis ha-yalad v'asara They think that David's going to commit suicide. Because, and you'd only think that about a person right, who was just distraught beyond words. So David, through every fiber of his being and if we were there, you'd know it immediately and the Navi tells us Right, is projecting this incredible remorse, this incredible, deep, contrite... And, and they're, they're afraid that literally he's going to take his own life now because his sense of grief, his sense of accountability, his sense of responsibility and shame and blame and all of that right, is literally more than he can even, even bear. But David, again, he's just always spiritually one step ahead. Vayar David ki abadav mislachashim so David sees that his, his avadim are, are whispering, Vayavin David ki hayalad, and he understands that his worst fears have come to pass. Vayomer David al avadav hames hayalad, is the child indeed, Vayomru mes. Vayakum David mehaaretz, Vayarchatz, Vayasach, Vayachalev simlosav. 
So David cleans himself up and he changes his clothes. Vayavo beis Hashem vayishtachu. And he moves on from there. And of course, then there's a conversation, which if we have time, we're going to get into. Where does David immediately go? He goes to the house of God. But how, in our, and maybe in rabbinic terminology, how would you describe or encapsulate what he does there? Vayishtachu, he bows down to God. What is that? Tzedek There's deep accountability. But through deep accountability, right, even though our worst fears are, to put it in Kayan's language, that owning up to our sins will be a crushing process, will you know, lead inevitably to distancing us from God, David shows us the opposite is the case. That when we can deeply accept responsibility and take accountability for things and do everything we can to try to mitigate the consequences, not so much for ourselves, but at least on behalf of the other people who have been caught up in our web of sin, ba'ad hana'ar, Right, that the path of accountability leads us not away from God, but in this, um, to me, incredibly stirring way, back to the Beis Hashem, Vayishtahu, the process of Tzedek Hadin. Vayomru this is the 21st verse, Mahadavar Asher Asisa. It's a remarkable dialogue. They can't understand what David is teaching us. Just elude them. What are you doing? What are you doing? When the child was living, you know, you were inconsolable. You were on the floor, fasting. You were a madman. Right? And when the child right, died, all of a sudden, right, you're, you know, eating and functioning as you normally would. So David's response is, well, I don't understand you. V'chanani Hashem v'chai hayaled. Who knows? Maybe God will have chen, and let's not forget that the word chen, the roots of that in, in, in Tanakh are when Moshe says to God, what are your, after the sin of the Egel Hazahav, what are the darche hashkacha, what are the ways of providence? And God says, you won't understand them. V'chanosi es asher achon, v'richamti es asher arachem. The lesson of, of chen is, is chinam, not because I deserve it, but because sometimes God showers us with his rachamim. So David, it's just a remarkable line, but what he's saying is, is that God holds the cards here. It's this deep recognition of who's running the show. Yes, I sinned, I violated the will of God, but I, truly who I am, I deeply understand that if there will be a favorable outcome, it's because God will show me chen. Now that the child has died, lama ze'anit sam, right, ha'uchal lahashivo od, Ani holech elav, some of the most beautiful words that have ever been said about death. Ani holech elav, the more that I go to him internally, emotionally, who lo yashuv elai, right, I can't bring him back. It's heartbreaking, but, you know, in this moment of incredible personal, what could be worse than the loss of a child, right, David, right, again, it's the opposite of kabdenina, he lowers himself to the ground, it's the opposite of. I'm going to dispute the facts, I'm going to reassign blame, it's quite simply, it's Tzidda Kadin, he really is the architect of tshuva, of accountability. Everything that we do, uh, in terms of our own tshuva process, is meant um, to mimic, I would say, um, the various stages that David goes through. There's always, um, and with this section, um, we'll bring our remarks to conclusion, um, there's always a great litmus test. 
um, for whether or not we've really owned up to things or we continue to operate on the basis of uh, either disputing the facts, shifting blame, uh, transferring accountability. There's always a litmus test uh, in Tanakh, which is how you relate to the people who were somehow uh, involved in your sin. People that were either objects of your sin or affected or affected by your sin. Let me just try to illustrate this through the stories that we've seen uh, this morning. The most famous example of this, um, I think, has to do with the uh, immediate uh, and proximate result of David's sin with Batshev, the story of Amnon and Tamar. You recall the story, Amnon uh, has an obsession with his sister Tamar. They share the same father, but not the same mother. It's an incestuous lust. Um, and he rapes her. Uh, he concocts the whole scenario, but he, he rapes her. And in one of the most emotionally abusive and brutal scenes in Tanakh, not only does he rape her, and again, you know, um, rape is terrible no matter what. Again, there is no such thing as uh, a time or place where rape is like, you know, anything less than absolutely awful. But let's not forget that, you know, in, in the time and place, we can even speak about it being, you know, uh, even more of a, of a devastation in terms of uh, a person... Uh, being able to resume life. Um, thank God we live in a society where people who have been through that terribly traumatic experience are seen um, as having been deeply wronged as opposed to being seen, God forbid, you know, you, you shudder to say the words, as some kind of damaged uh, goods. Okay, but let's just keep that in mind. Now, that is important because of the dialogue. Tamar begs her brother not to cast her out now that he's done this to her, but to marry her. It seems like a strange thing. Why would you possibly want to ever see this person again? But that's why I mentioned what I just did. It's a little bit um, of the story. Um, again, it's complex in this case because it's incestuous, but um, Amnon is having none of it. Vayisna'eha Amnon, this is the 10th source, Sina gedola me'od. Me'od is always an important word in Tanakh takes things to the next level. Amnon detested her with a kind of an inarticulable um, uh, intensity. It superseded and transcended the lust, which was enough for him to rape her, that he felt towards her to begin with. Get out. Which is pretty awful in terms of you know, emotional abuse. Don't commit an atrocity worse than the one that you just committed. Right? It was bad enough that you raped me, but then to throw me out. Right? To throw me out would now be even worse because not only have you, you know, committed this singular act of violence and abuse to me, but now basically the rest of my life. Vilo doesn't get more brutal than this. So he gets his uh, aide de camp, as it were. Pretty horrible, right? Literally, an object. Cast aside this from in front of me. You won't even call her by a name. It's just the, the most objectified formulation possible. Lock her out. What does Amnon hate? What does he really hate? Himself. He hates himself. And because he really doesn't have the depth, he doesn't have the character to come to terms with that, so the object of his sexual sin 
becomes such, uh, such an anathema to him that he can no longer even be with it, right? Uh, to, we alluded to it before, you know, Lady Macbeth, out, out, damn spot. Right? The obsessive. He can't bear... Now, this is uh, self-explanatory, but it becomes much sharper in the context of David's response to Bathsheba. This is the litmus test, again, for how we know that David really did take accountability unlike his son Amnon what's David's immediate response I cut off the second before because I wanted to present it in this order this is the 11th source David ishto. he doesn't throw her out but he tries his best to offer her nechama right? she lost a child also and a husband and a family so he does his best but it's not just Bathsheba but Bathsheba ishto tries to, this is the opposite of Amnon, throwing Zos out and locking her out, but he brings her close. Now that would be redundant if it was just to describe the sexual act, but is meant to connote not just the sexual act, but the fact that this is the product of real intimacy. And God loved this child. No. I didn't try to understand by reading the Rambam what was it that God loved about this child but in any event that this child was Yadid Lahashem this child was Ahuv Lahashem this child was very special to God now this child was of course literally I mean this not just in the figurative sense but literally the offspring of Tshuva and real Tshuva as determined by that litmus test is does the object of your sin the person with whom you sinned or the person upon whom you sinned does she become detestable to you because you really can't confront what you've done or do you accept responsibility and you do your best again you can't change the past but you do your best to at least going forward provide the kind of a framework and of course David takes this ad hasof what does he tell Bathsheba that of course this child will be Shlomo, this child will be the next king. The Rambam tells us the following: Gedola Teshuva, Shemikarebes Es Haadam. I want to use this Rambam to explain the Psukim in Shmuel. Teshuva is so remarkable; it brings people close to God. That, contrary to what Kayan thought, that by taking responsibility for his failures, that this would cause great distance, Mipanecha Esaser, right? That he would have to hide from God because once you confront how deeply flawed you are, how can you stand before he who is perfect? The opposite is the case. It's counterintuitive. Just one second. Just to finish the story. Emesh, Tshuva brings those who are far away close. Emesh, just yesterday, God, as it were, despised the person. Mishukat, abominable, miruchak, distant toeva. Repugnant. Hayom, well, listen to the words that the Rambam uses here, and you'll hear the echoes of Shmuel. Hayom, though, but today, Ahuv, Nechmad, Karov, Yadid. Ahuv and Yadid, beloved, intimate, close. This is exactly the words that God uses to describe this child. Of course, the child hasn't done anything yet. It's not the child for the child's own sake. It's because the child is literally, you know, I mean this both, again, literally and figuratively, is the child of Tshuva. It's what the power of Tshuva is. It's that restoration between man and God 
is, is possible through the process of tshuva, but it's not just that restoration, it's the interpersonal restoration as well. David becomes closer with Bathsheba, Amnon becomes so much further away. I just wanted to conclude, and, uh, hopefully we'll have, it's 12.30, so we'll have that 10 to 15 minutes left over for questions, by noting that this process is actually um, not just limited to David and Bathsheba and countermanded by what happens with Amnon and Tamar, but is actually pioneered by Adam Harishon. What was the process for Adam Harishon? Let's go back to the second and third chapters of Breshit. How did Adam first describe the woman that was given to him by God? Lotov heyos ha'adam levado lo It is not good for man to be alone, says God. Right? I will make him uh, help me. And so... Eventually, Adam confronts this remarkable new being that's uh, his companion and he is her companion. And it says, right, uh, a person will, so to speak, leave their parents. There will be this incredible um, union that's created. Uh, Adam says, when he meets her finally, this is the tam etse meyatsamayu besarmi besari. It is the bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh. Lezos yikarei isha. And he calls her isha. Which is all well and good, and it seems innocuous enough, until you realize that part of that which, um, what I would call was part of the pathology of Adam's sin, was that he could only see the woman that was with him as an extension of himself, and somebody who was there only to help him. Remember what he said, Ha'isha asher natata imadi. Right? The woman, and this is the way that Chazal certainly understood it, the woman who was supposed to be perfectly helpful to me, God, either she tripped me up or you tripped me up because she undermined me. Okay. So, before he can really come to a position of accountability, Adam is now pushing away the one that he thought was really an extension of himself. Because, again, he had, to begin with, a sort of distorted notion of her, of her role. But look at the shift that happens. What happens after Adam comes to terms with his sin? The first thing, he gives her a very different name. What does he call her name? Chava. Kihi haisa aim kolchai. And Rashi explains what does it mean aim kolchai it's from the language of because she has something which is still the most remarkable aspect of the human race that a woman can literally nurture and give life to a child and he now sees this in her but what's the real transition here? he no longer sees her as merely the Isha something which is there for his purposes but he, he not only right, understands that that's deficient but he now sees in her the potential to be something so much more than that and, and the real important point here is this is before she even has children but he can see so much more all of a sudden the next Pasuk is Vayeda Adam is Chava Ishto it's not just that he had relations with her but there was deep Yedi'ah it's a kind of an intimacy because Adam is able to accept his own failure what that does is instead of distancing himself from this woman not only does it bring him closer to her, but he actually understands that she has independent value. Right? She's not just the Isha, but she's Chava. She can actually powerfully do something that he cannot. So, 
the benefits of accountability not only are one that it's restorative in terms of the relationship with God you know that we saw through David and we saw the opposite in the, in the context of, of Cain and Adam to begin with and Shaul but what it can really help us accomplish is the people that we're most likely to push away because we know or we associate them with our sin David and Bathsheba Amnon Tamar Adam and Chava ultimately can bring us much closer together to them um, to me, the most powerful metaphor uh, of them all is uh, what I alluded to beginning, and with this we'll conclude, um, that Adam and uh, the Isha, after, and this is where we began, after the original sin, what did they make for themselves? What did they fashion? They were able on their own, again, I couldn't do it, so I'm not demeaning it, they were able on their own to fashion these kinds of minimal garments. They were able to cover up a part of things, but they weren't able to really uh, provide the kind of warmth, uh, I mean that figuratively, that you would expect from something that was all-encompassing. So God says it's not enough. And what does God make for them? As a symbol of the fact that he can really embrace them, vayas lahem elokim kotnot or. A ketonet of or, the rashbam, Rashi's grandson, explains kotnot or, because it encompassed the whole body. What could be a more powerful metaphor? When, when Shaul runs from God and he can't own up to things, the cloak is torn. If Adam and Chava are able to accept their responsibility, then God is waiting, what I have in my mind, I'm sure it wasn't exactly this way, sometimes kids get them today, they call them, I think, onesies, right? right? It's like this incredibly warm and encompassing ketones, the point really is, is that God is saying, I'm, ready, I'm standing here ready to envelop you. I can accept literally all of you, even the parts that you find most offensive about yourself, if you can only own up to them. So there's this deep, it's somewhat counterintuitive, but there God stands waiting for us with the proverbial ketones if we're ready to turn towards him. And it can do much more, it can provide us much more by way of solace than any of the proverbial chagorot, the alei te'ina, that we would fashion on our own uh, for ourselves. So the process of confronting personal failure is a very difficult one. I think what we understand is that that which uh, deters it is the gadolav oniminaso, the sense that it's really too much to bear, either for God or for ourselves. But um, through this process, um, the archetype is, of course, David HaMelech, understanding what the Rambam taught us, that the agency really is ours. Uh, the irony is, is that by accepting and taking responsibility for the most um, uh, offensive or uh, um, unpleasant parts of ourselves, uh, the parts that we assume that people will be uh, most um, uh, horrified by, we can become closer to the people around us, the people who have been involved, uh, the Bathshevas, the Chavas, whatever it is, and uh, most importantly, it has the restorative relationship uh, with Hashem. I know there are a lot of questions, so I'll hold it up there, um, and I guess until 10.45.